I, um, I've gone through all these different seasons of my life, especially growing up in the church. My father's a minister. My grandfather was a minister. And all these different seasons of trying to, I don't know, figure out the depths of God and to get into like deep things. My understanding of what depth is and what the deeper mysteries uh, in fact are has maneuvered a lot during the years. When I was very young, I was really enamored by the traveling prophecy preachers that came through and they claimed to understand the deep mysteries of the faith um, in the sense that they would talk about reading the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other, And they had the secrets to the end of the world. And they had charts and they had graphs. Incidentally, every single one of them are wrong. And I just want to tell you that your favorite prophecy teacher, your chart and graph guy, they're wrong about everything. (laughs) Was that an overgeneralization? They're wrong about everything. Jack Van Impey's wrong about everything. I'm just saying. Wrong about everything. Some of you are not laughing. You're very uncomfortable. Wrong about everything. (laughs) Nothing mysterious about any of that. You you can read the Bible... um, why, don't I, why am I even doing this? This isn't part of the message, I don't think. <laughs> Do crossword puzzles in Greek and Hebrew to find your name in it? Like, we can barely even read the Bible forwards and make sense of it. This is not, anyway. So that doesn't, you know, that doesn't work. But then there was this phase, like, in my tradition, I always thought the deep things of God were about the gifts of the Spirit. So going deeper always meant going into deeper spirit stuff, you know, more about spiritual gifts. And all of which I believe in, there was a long phase where, Every, everything was about spiritual warfare. So it was all about like being able to name demons and confront demons and cast out demons. I'd be in services where people would talk to the demons and ask them for their name and stuff like that, which sounds really awesome. I have all this, um, I have these terrible stories, by the way, probably none of which are appropriate to share, but I can't help it. It's like <laughs> of, of moments where this goes wrong. This was told to me as a, as a true story. So I have a friend who was in a, a friend of a friend in this service in Georgia. And like, you know, my kind of Pentecostal church is you spend three and a half hours in the altar service praying and seeking and, you know, like just having a good time. And so this young guy's down in the altar and he's praying and seeking God. And this lady's going around trying to cast demons out of everybody, right? And so she comes up to him. He's kind of overweight. And she starts to pray over him, spirit of obesity, I command you to come out in the name of Jesus Christ. Cringeworthy, right? And this young man who's very quick-witted says, I will for a cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Literally my favorite story. That is my favorite story that I know. I will wake up in the middle of the night and say it to him, I will for a cookie. Like I can... I never get tired of that story. (laughs) Best thing I've ever heard. But I always thought like that kind of demonology, and I thought this is spooky, this is mysterious, this is where the deep stuff is. The, The older I get, the more I'm coming to see that all the stuff that we thought was the most fundamental and basic that we thought we had down is actually where the depth is. That there is in fact nothing deeper than the love of God. And when you start coming to church and you think, especially a church like Sanctuary, where everybody's talking about love all the time and thinking, when is somebody going to get around to talking to about, the, about the deep things? These are the deep things. There's nothing deeper than love. There's nothing more simple conceptually and nothing harder to live than really walking in the love of God 
and walking in love for others. So to, to, I want to talk about this, though, today specifically through a really odd text. And um, as soon as I looked at the lectionary text this week, I knew what I had to do. Um, the Old Testament reading is about Absalom, David's son. And I've had Absalom on my brain here for a while. If I can give you just a glimpse into the private lives of your pastoral staff. So um, pastors Brent and Janice, you know, they, take, they care for me so well. Pastor Ed has really become a spiritual father to me. I feel like that's the call in his life. The, Paul talks about how we don't have many fathers. I mean, he really is a father, and I refer to him as my bishop. And uh, Pastor Ed has this way of just using Scripture in the most quirky ways. And uh, so a couple weeks ago, I thought this was just awesome. He was just encouraging me about my new role here and moving to Tulsa and all everything at Sanctuary. And having this fatherly heart, he was giving me the talk about how like he really wanted me to succeed. And I want people to love you. I want people to connect with you. And if they connect with you, that's like connecting with me. Like that's, that's what I want. And so his way of illustrating this is he, he brought up Absalom, David's son. And if you've forgotten about David's son, so here, here's the deal there. Um, he has this terrible hubris. He's very proud. He's arrogant. He has fabulous hair, but it is his downfall. And um, he's the person who engineers an uprising against King David, the most beloved king in Israel's history, who is his father. So Ed says to me, you, know, you remember that story in the Bible where Absalom is standing outside the gate? What happens, you know, is like Absalom is at the city gate. And he's greeting everybody when they comes in to kind of like cozy up to them. So when new people are coming into town, what he tells them is, you know, now my father, King David, he won't listen to you, but I'll listen to you. And he gets everybody, you know, makes everybody his friend. And this is how he engineers the rebellion. The text specifically says that, that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. So Ed says to me, I want you to be like Absalom at sanctuary, except positive, I want you to be a positive Absalom. I don't want to say I'm at a fragile place in my life, but I was like, Ed, can I please have another Bible character as like my representative figure other than Absalom? Love to have his fabulous hair, but really this is like, I would, if, I've, if I'm going to have to have like a spirit animal in the Bible, I would choose someone other than Absalom. Absalom's such a tragic, tragic figure. And I think that one of the reasons we don't hear more about Absalom and really a lot of these other stories that come from the second half of David's life in particular is that there is so much ambiguity to them. I mean, it's the very definition of, of ambiguity. These are these stories that seem to always exist in the liminal space. They're kind of in between. Um, it's not, when we talk about David, we tend to talk either about his greatest victories, which would be David and Goliath, or I've heard many sermons on David's great failure in terms of the murder of Uriah, taking Bathsheba to be his own wife, as if every moment in life is epic failure and success uh, somehow. There's nothing in between. The fact of the matter is most of our lives are lived in those in-between spaces. Most of our lives are in the liminal space. Most of our lives are lived in ambiguity. But I think often we don't want to confront the ambiguity in Scripture because if we did confront the ambiguity in Scripture, we'd have to confront the ambiguity in ourselves. Is anybody listening to me? We don't want to confront the ambiguity in ourselves, so we don't want to confront the ambiguity in the text. It, it, it hits too close to home. We are people who need our history, even our personal history, to be as straightforward and clear as it can possibly be so that we can sleep better at night. I have seen some mean, cantankerous mamas in the world. Man, like after mama dies, oh Lord, 
she never did a wrong thing. Like you, you look through the past through such rose-colored glances, like nothing bad ever happened. Mama was awesome. People do this not only with Mama, but with America. Because like we need a sense of history where there's continuity and everything's great. One of the most puzzling things for me is how often I'll hear in churches where people do this deal about what a great Christian nation we were and how this country was founded on Christian principles. And of course, we've just gone downhill in the last few decades when people started cussing on television and stuff like that, <laughs> et cetera. And I, it, it, that's always strange to me because like, okay, yes, we have a lot of religious language in our founding or whatever, but it is being founded on a Christian nation, where does the slaughter of Native Americans fit into this story where does the extent to which we built our economy early on on a system of slavery, where does that fit into that story? Uh, uh, you know, or even for people who have this like, sense of the glory days of if we could get back to the good old days when people loved God and life was simple and good in the 1940s and 50s, and again, nobody cussed on TV and Donna Reed and blah, blah, blah. Like, does this include Jim Crow laws? Does this include separate water fountains? I hate to tell you, the 40s and 50s weren't glory years for everybody, you know, it's like, but there's this sense of, of glossing over because we need a story that has great continuity, that has no contradiction, that has no loose ends. So we're very, very slow to embrace any sort of ambiguity. But this text for me is just full of ambiguity. So context goes like this, right? So what's happened? And uh, it's, it's fairly sorted, right? So David has a couple different kids. Um, Absalom has a half-brother named Amnon, who rapes his own sister, right? So he, he rapes his sister, and Absalom is incensed by this, by the rape of Tamar. So for like two years, he sees about this, because Amnon he saw as being David's favorite son. He saw his father lavish affection on Amnon. He's so wounded by what happened to his sister. For two years, this festers, until finally Absalom kills his brother, cold blood, when he does, he flees the city, and from there on, we get this incredibly complex, ambiguous narrative of a father and son in, in David and, and Absalom that I think is just heartbreaking, but so fascinating. Specifically, 2 Samuel 14, I want to back up to this before we kind of get to the main text, because this is so significant. Absalom flees, and because he knows that he's incurred the wrath of his father, by the murder of Amnon. Now you have to keep in mind that this is long after for David. This is long after his own great sin. This is after David's own forgiveness and reconciliation. So David's a guy who not only had this extraordinary grasp of the love of God when he was young, here's a person who now has experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God on an unprecedented level. Like David is so well acquainted with God's heart and God's forgiveness. But we finally get to this text where Absalom is gonna come home. 2 Samuel 14, beginning with verse 12. Then the king said to Joab, very well, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. I wanna highlight that phrase, hold that for later. The young man Absalom. Joab prostrated himself with his face to the ground and did obeisance and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, the king in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab went off, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Now I want you to really pay attention to this. Then the king said, let him go to his own house. He is not to come into my presence. Let him go to his own house. He is not to come into my presence. 
So Absalom went to his own house and did not come into the king's presence. What we have in the story of David and Absalom, I'm convinced, is literally the prodigal son in reverse. David's son comes back home. Whether his, or not at this point his motives are pure, we do not know. This is before the uprising and all of that. But he comes back home. He's bowing before his father. He's asking for forgiveness. And David, who as we'll see, deeply does still love Absalom, his son, has a profound love for Absalom. David says, I'll let Absalom back on the grounds. He can have his own house, but he's not coming into mine. He can have a place, but he can't have a place under my own roof. He has a place in the kingdom, but I'm going to keep him from a distance. So instead of drawing Absalom close, instead of extending the same kind of complete forgiveness that David himself had received, David is still thinking pragmatically. He's still thinking politically. He knows Absalom might be dangerous. He doesn't know how all this is going to play. So he chooses to love Absalom from a distance and hold him from afar. From this, we see the ancient dance that happens between fathers and sons just continue to play out. Of course, Absalom becomes more resentful of his father because now he is back in the town. He is back within city walls, but he, he doesn't have a place in his father's presence. He feels that he's being pushed off from a distance. This is what leads into everything Absalom does from there. This is what leads into him going to the gate and starting to recruit people uh, towards his own rebellion until finally Absalom has, has a whole maverick army to challenge the army of his father. And that's what leads to the last text we'll look at. And this, um, for me, is so tragic and so powerful, too. So moving on in 2 Samuel chapter 18, after Absalom has rebelled, the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, and, and really watch this phrase, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Second time in a couple chapters that David has referred to Absalom as the young man Absalom. Do you hear the distance and detachment in his voice? This isn't Absalom, my son, the young man Absalom. <laughs> You can almost feel David's self-protection here. This is a son that he loves. This is a son that he wants to draw close to, but he doesn't know how to. He doesn't know how to bridge the distance between him. So now whenever he speaks to Abs about Absalom even, it's stiff, it's formal, it's kingly. The young man Absalom. And yet, even though he knows he has to put down this uprising, even though he knows that the threat is so great. His first concern is, don't harm my son. Don't kill my boy. But he doesn't say that. He says, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. Just, just note how stiff that is. So all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, the fabulous hair. And he was left hanging, I really love this phrase, 
He was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. There is no way the narrator here does not intend this to be pregnant with more meaning than the literal one. Absalom is the very picture of ambiguity in David's life. His whole life is lived between heaven and earth. He's always in between. He's always in the liminal space. He's always between his father's passion and expectation. He's always between this sense of destiny that is on him as a prince, as a king's son, and yet between his own rebellion, his own wild desires, his own agenda, his own vanity. Uh, He's in between everything. Everything about his life is lived in this in-between space. So there's something then so compelling about this image that when his head, his hair, is caught in the branches, that he's suspended between heaven and earth, hanging there, neither here nor there, stuck somewhere in the middle like Absalom had always been. So the text goes on. Then ten young men, Joab's armor bearer, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So after all the people have heard the orders... They now have their own agenda against Absalom, and no matter what the king says, they want his life. So while he's vulnerable, they strike and kill him. This is heavy, right? This is not happy stuff. Then the Cushite came a little bit later as the report comes to David, and the Cushite said, good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? I'm fascinated by that. David hasn't been sitting on pins and needles waiting to hear who won the fight. David isn't so concerned with, did you guys win the war? What David wants to know, is my son okay? What happened to Absalom? Is he all right? This is still the first concern for David, even after all the things that have transpired between them. The Cushite answered, clearly not picking up on signals here, may the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The King was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, and I think this is the most tragic, heartbreaking verse in all of Scripture. Oh, my son Absalom, my son my son, Absalom. Would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom. My son, my son. David, who in every other text that we saw refers to Absalom as the young man, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. It's only when he receives words of Absalom's death that he's able to speak the words over him that Absalom longed to hear for in life. The words that Absalom was hungry to hear from his father never got while he was alive. But in his death, David, in his grief and heartbreak, exclaims it over and over again. Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Four times, my son, my son, my son, my son. And you can hear the anguish in that phrase of everything that he ever hoped for for Absalom. You can feel the the, the rage and the hurt at every way that Absalom had hurt him. All of that in one single cry. And it's not now until it's far too late that David is able to speak the words over Absalom that his heart was always hungry for. It's a story about fathers and sons. And yet in the same way, I really think this is such a human story. Um, 
I don't know what this is like for you, but I can think of so many times in my life where there was someone that I deeply cared for, but after I felt wounded in some way, after I felt rejected in some way, what's the first instinct? To self-protect. So that this person whom you love dearly, now everything's stiff, the young man, Absalom. We don't speak words anymore like friend or brother or sister or father or mother. Everything becomes stiff. Um, or, or we get kind of passive-aggressive. Footnote for people who are commonly passive-aggressive, God loves you with an everlasting love. Everybody else, you're driving them crazy. <laughs> like you, but we all do it from time to time, right? You know what it is to be passive-aggressive? When you're upset and someone says, how are you? I'm fine. Yeah, are you sure? Yeah, I'm okay. There's something wrong. Nothing's wrong, right? Like there's this, this sense of like, like you're guarded. I'm not going to show anything vulnerable. The, the, the truth of the matter is the people who we love the most are capable of wounding us the most deeply. So then we get super insulated. And again, it becomes that game of self-protection, the same thing that David's doing here over and over again. He has deep feeling for his son. After his son is already gone, all of that comes screaming out from David's heart. There's nothing he wants more than to be able to embrace Absalom and call him my son. It's what Absalom wants, but he doesn't know how to ask for it. It's what David wants to say, but he can't find the courage to say it until it's too late. And this is so often the pattern of how relationships work for us. For me, though, even on a deeper and more disturbing level is the fact that David is a man who, once again, has received extraordinary forgiveness. David knows what it is to experience the free pardon of God and to be fully restored. And yet, isn't there something about us that no matter how much we've been forgiven of, no matter how generous and good and gracious God has been to us, there are still certain buttons inside of us that if somebody else hits them, man... There is no forgiveness for that. God forgave me for my perfectly understandable sin. You ever notice this pattern? Like all of my sin, at least it makes sense, right? I mean, I shouldn't have done it, but you can understand how I did it. But then when I'm offended at somebody else, oh God, there is no excuse for behavior like that. How dare, who do you think you are, right? And this is for people who are deeply experienced in the love of God. That, for me, is the legacy of David that we never seem to, to talk about again because I think it is so ambiguous, we don't even know what to do with it. Is that here you've got a guy who, from the time he was a boy, he's in the fields and he's writing this extraordinary poetry, just, just crying out for God. He's the only person in scripture referred to as a man after God's own heart. He gets the love of God. He has a revelation of his own belovedness like we don't get anywhere in the Bible before Jesus. I mean, David's the only person before Jesus who seems to really grasp something of the height and depth and the breadth of the love of God. Like he gets it and he gets it when he's a boy. And when he fails, the love of God is there for him. When he makes his own poor choices, God embraces him, and he knows this forgiveness to the core of his being. And yet when it comes to his own son, he doesn't know how to not be pragmatic. He doesn't know how to not think like a king. Footnote for you, forgiveness is never practical. 
deep love of any sort is never pragmatic. It doesn't make sense after you, you have been hurt. It doesn't make sense, naturally speaking, to expose your nerves out before this person again and say, reject me if you want to, kick me if you want to, but I'm going to keep loving you this way. It doesn't make sense once you've already been bit in some way to make yourself vulnerable all over again. Love is not pragmatic. Forgiveness is never practical. And, and, but the thing we have to conceive of here is that God's forgiveness towards us is not pragmatic or practical. If God was practical with us about any of this, we would be in really bad shape, right? I mean, like this is nothing pragmatic about this kind of forgiveness. The other thing I wanted to bring up, I don't want to go to the text, but the other thing that really disturbs me in the latter years of David's life, again, never heard a sermon on this in my life, but when David is on his deathbed, He's talking to Solomon, and this is literally, this is right before he breathes his final breath. He, he is on his way out of this. The whole legacy of David, it's complicated, but there's so much beauty to it. He, he is the great hero of the Old Testament. Just before David dies, he's given instructions to his son Solomon, and he reminds Solomon of all the people that had slighted him, offended him, insulted him, that David had chosen to forgive. And he goes straight up dirty Harry and says to Solomon, I promised, I swore that I would forgive them. I swore that I wouldn't kill them. You didn't make that promise. So now Godfather style, he says, everybody that I didn't take out, you take them out. He specifically says, don't let any of their gray heads go down in peace. Now that is out of the Godfather right there. Anybody that I forgave, you take care of business for me. Now, this is David on his deathbed. And I'm saying all of that not to villainize David, who is, again, this great figure in the ambiguous way that all great people are. He's still very much a human being. But because it so underscores this point, that no matter how much revelation you get of God, no matter how much you get you experience of God's presence or God's power, miracles, whatever else. It is still the hardest thing in the world to really walk in love. There is nothing, again, that's more simple, but there's nothing more complicated. The fact of the matter is, even though, of course, it's always God loving through us to live in this way, to walk in the love of God and to walk in authentic love towards people, it takes everything that we have. It, it will gut us. It will expose us. It will rip us open over. That's a song that I love. Love will tear us apart. It tears us apart over and over again. To make a decision to walk in love towards the people around you is to make a decision to live vulnerable, exposed. It's to make a decision to choose to be hurt. That's what it means. You cannot love anybody or anything that you do not give permission to hurt you. I'm not talking about staying in an abusive relationship. I'm saying that love always demands that kind of emotional vulnerability. It's the way that God loves us. It's the story of the cross. In God making himself available to be rejected by us, to be despised by us, and yet to fully expose himself for us anyway. Love always demands that kind of vulnerability. This is why I'm so convinced that there's nothing deeper than love. 
There's nothing deeper than God's love. There's not a deeper mystery to figure out. And in fact, Paul, who once again does grasp the mysteries, says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 13, that even if I had insight into all the mysteries, even if I speak with tongues of men and angels, profits me nothing if there is not love. Love is the whole ballgame, not gifts. And for those of us who love academic theology and jargon, I love that world too. But how often does it become an elaborate distraction to not have to deal with the actual reality of loving people well? I Don't talk to me about loving people well in real life. I want to talk about soteriology and eschatology. Please, please, give me big words that can make me sound smart so that I don't have to deal with the most fundamental human realities where at the end of the day, no matter how big you are, no matter how strong you are, how experienced you are, it is still hard as hell to love people well. Nothing deeper. Nothing that demands more of us. And I'll close with this. This is why Paul prays over the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, and Chris actually referenced this verse last week in Ephesians 3. He says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. Watch this. He says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend. I pray that you may have power to comprehend the mystery of signs and wonders and tongues and healings. I pray that you may somehow comprehend the depth and breadth of soteriology. I pray that you will grasp the eschatological revelations and implications. I pray that you, I mean, you don't get any of that. Paul says, I pray that you'll have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The wisest sage in the New Testament and his only prayer consistently for the people of God is that they would grasp God's love. For those of us that are still looking for something deeper, or this is really bad news sometimes when you have somebody in your life that you really want to straighten them out, and this is where this comes from sometimes. When are they going to preach about blah, blah, blah? I'm ready for people to be called on the carpet and all of that. See, here's the thing. Like, we can talk about law. We can preach about rules, all of that. It doesn't work. I mean, it just doesn't work. I said this in the first service and thought it sounded controversial, but I think I'm going to say it this way again. It didn't even work for God. You know how many times in the Old Testament you have some account of God wiping everybody out? The next generation comes up and they do the same thing all over again. If it didn't work for God, it won't work for you. Somebody tweet that. <laughs> if it didn't work, if God wiping everybody out didn't cause a change in the generations to come, what makes you think? So I keep having that imaginary conversation in the shower of what I will say if I really get the opportunity. And a couple times, maybe you've done that. And I'm just asking the question, how many times has that ever really worked? You tell that person what for, you like give them the full business, and then they say, oh, you are so right. How did I not see? Thank you so much for loving me this way. Where is water that I may be baptized? Like, please. 
bring me to your church. It's never produced change in anybody. It is only the revelation of the mysterious, all-encompassing, all-surpassing love of God that ever changes anything in anybody, anytime. Nothing else works. But where that's so challenging for us is that it demands that we keep going back to the well over and over again, even and maybe especially after we've been hurt, and we keep extending that love and grace, even if it means we keep getting bit ourselves. That we keep speaking the, that better word of sonship, that, that word son, daughter, brother, sister, friend. Even Jesus says in the garden, I'm convinced not sarcastically, that when Judas comes to take him captive, what Jesus says is, friend, do what you've come here to do. So that even in the moment that he's about to be led away, Jesus is still extending friendship to Judas all the way up until the end. That's what we're called to do. And there's no way we can do it without a supernatural revelation of the love of God. Stand with me, if you would. Before Pastor Brent comes to lead us to the Lord's table, I just want to pray with you and for you. God, we just confess. As people with our own ambiguity and our own Absaloms, and in some cases our own distant fathers for some people in the room. We have these relationships. We recognize this dance because we do it over and over again. And God, we just recognize in this moment that um, recognize how little we really know, how little we really grasp of your great love. Time and time again, you extend your fathomless love towards us. And yet there's still something there's still some, something alive in our ego that says whenever we're the ones wounded, whenever we're the ones hurt, that says, how dare you talk to me that way? God, we just ask this morning individually and as a community for a fresh baptism of love that we would be immersed in the love of God, that we would be submerged in the love of God that everything about who we are would be washed over with your grace and with your mercy in every nook and every cranny and everything that we would hide or hold back. All the bitterness that gets in between the cracks, all the feelings that we justify, all the things, Lord, that we've held against another, we pray today that the love of God would wash all of that out. And I pray for sanctuary as a community, God, not that we would be the biggest this or the best that, but God, we just pray that this would be a community that is radiant with the splendor of your love, that this would be a place that where the wayward sons and daughters, where the Absaloms come home, that they are fully embraced and cherished. And that you would teach us, Lord, how to love the world in that way. Teach us how to live vulnerable. Teach us how to live with our hearts open and exposed. Heal and mend us in the places that we're too broken right now. So that we will once again have something to give. And then instead of indulging our own, um, our own festering wounds, that you would again be able to break us open. 
so that we would extend your love. Wash us, cleanse us, baptize us again now in your deep, wide, everlasting love. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.